This is episode number 167 with Darren Roberts. Success 101 Podcast. This is your host, Jared Warren. At each episode, my goal is to bring you a new concept or idea to help you maximize your full potential. Thanks for joining me here today. Now let's kick things off. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Guys, welcome back to the Success 101 Podcast. I am so fired up here in Dallas, Texas at the productive week that I'm having. My team is just crushing it here at our financial advising office. We are growing. We are running out of space. And for you entrepreneurs out there, you know what I'm talking about. That is a good problem to have because growth is good. And I've certainly enjoyed the comments coming in from you guys lately. I don't mention this very often, but my team encouraged me this week to shoot a message out to you guys about reviews for the Success 101 podcast. Now, you don't necessarily have to write a review unless you've got some great things to tell me which by all means, please go ahead. I'll give two quick words from our sponsors today. One, my book, From Success to Significance, is still available for free. All I'm asking you to do is cover the shipping. Head over to success101podcast.com forward slash the dash book and enter Success 101 at the promo code. The response has been overwhelming and my team is trying to keep up getting these out to you guys. So keep bombarding them because I love being able to offer this for free and hearing the feedback you guys are getting working through the different modules in the book of the six vision building exercises and the five components to building your strategic vision. Also, the human charger is 20% off through Valky, this amazing device called the sun in your pocket where two super bright white with blue light infused LED earbuds go inside of your ears and give your brain the same effect as looking at the sun but you don't have to lose your vision in the process. What a deal. You guys know that I throw in those things in the morning as I'm driving in or in the afternoon before hitting a 2.30 p.m. crash. Grab your device today for 20% off. Just head to success101podcast.com forward slash human charger. And again, in the promo section, enter code success101 at checkout for your 20% off. Now on to our amazing show today with my man, Darren Roberts. Have you guys ever called an audible? No, 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 not the backyard audible when you're playing flag football. Those are cool and those are fun, but I mean a real life audible. Darren Roberts did, and you're going to hear more about it today. In fact, in the fall before his third year at Harvard Law School, Darren decided to pursue a career in football coaching. Why? Because that's what his heart told him he was passionate about. And let me frame this for you guys. You'll hear a little bit about this in the show But what I'm blown away by is the fact that you don't just decide to go be an NFL coach and then become one. Normally, whenever you decide to be a coach, you start off teaching driver's ed at the high school level and coaching part-time or maybe coaching junior high or elementary PE class, and then you work your way up. And maybe, maybe, just maybe if you play your cards right and you know the right people and the stars align, you become an NFL coach. No. Not for Darren Roberts, because he's a man of action. He's a man of success. He's a man of significance when it comes to hard work, dedication, persistency. And he decided that he was going to go be an NFL coach. The odds were stacked against him. People thought he was crazy for making this decision. 
It's an amazing story that I cannot wait for you guys to hear. Today, Darren serves as the founding director of the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation at the University of Texas. Darren also went on to develop a course, a game plan for winning at life that is taught to incoming freshmen, student athletes, and each academic year he teaches nearly 300 students. So without any further delay, it is my absolute honor to bring you the story of Darren Roberts here on the Success 101 podcast. Darren Roberts, welcome to the Success 101 podcast, buddy. How are things down in Austin, Texas today? Jared, thanks for having me, man. Things are going well, and I am pumped to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Man, that's awesome. I got to do one thing, though, here before we start. <laughs> Couldn't have a Longhorn on without playing the Aggie Warham, right? Oh, uh, you right. just had to do it, huh? You I had, had to, do to do it. I've had to do it because you're the first Longhorn I've had on, and I'm like, I am not, after 160-something episodes, I got my first Longhorn here, and I'm not missing an opportunity to be able to do that. So, Well, Jared, this episode marks a major upgrade to the podcast, man. I got You got your first <laughs> Longhorn on. <laughs> man, I loved your book, Call an Audible. I know that's the meat of what we're going to be talking through today, and there's just so much depth to your story. I always love to have people on that can give so many different perspectives around that idea of success 101. And I know for you, somebody that comes with so much of the Harvard law and the business side of your brain versus the NFL coach, the dynamic part, and then now what you're doing down at UT Austin, leading the classes on leadership and financial acumen and things like that. There's just a lot there that I want to uncover. And a lot of that's going to point to the success of how you've gotten to where you are. Just with all of that said, why don't we take a big step backwards and why don't you start us off on how does somebody growing up in small town, East Texas, which I did as well. My town's a lot smaller than yours, though, so I can I can, I can claim that. But uh, takes the leap to Harvard Law. And then, as your book says, takes a big pivot over to NFL coach. Usually those things don't match up very well together. How did that happen and what was the mindset behind that? Well, Jerry, you know, first, I'm a fifth generation East Texan. My dad took out a map of Panola County, which is where he grew up. And it was an 1870 census type of map. And it had a plot of land, 153 acres uh, that was owned by Bill Roberts, which is my grandfather. And to this day, we have no clue how a black man in East Texas got 153 acres, you know, <laughs> five years removed from the Civil War. But we knew he must have been hustling somehow, some way, you know, and, and he, wow. he showed that to me. And he said, listen, this is why you will never have any excuses. And I remember him rolling that map wow. up and putting it back into the cupboard. And from an early age, I just felt like. My parents did a great job of taking the top off of my dreams. They exposed me to as much positive stimuli as they possibly could. And so went to the University of Texas. I was there from 97 to 01, decided that I was going to be the governor of the great state of Texas by age 40. And I'm turning 39 in November. And so, uh, you know, I, I took a couple of turns, you know, left turns, where I probably should have taken a right turn, but was student body president at UT and was on that path. Worked in government, worked for Senator Joe Lieberman for a year, went to the Kennedy School of Government, racked up about $100,000 worth of debt for a master's, went to Harvard Law School, racked up about $150,000 worth of debt. But 
I worked a football camp that a high school buddy of mine asked me to go to with him in South Carolina. And Jared, it was the best three days of my life. I mean, I was coaching sixth graders. It brought back everything that I loved about football. And I wasn't a great athlete, but I just love the way that that sport in particular brings guys together who would normally never be friends. And I decided I wanted to be a football coach. So wrote a letter to 32 teams in the NFL and got rejected from 31 of them. And I either got a rejection or just no response. But Herm Edwards, Kansas City Chiefs, gave me a shot in 2007 as a training camp intern. And Jared, that's how it started. I'm just smiling here as I'm thinking about this because I read your book uh, a couple of weeks ago and after you sent it to me and I'm just, you know, some of that stuff's coming back up in my mind, you know, writing the letters out and doing that. I just, man, it's just perplexing to me because whenever you look at society today and you look at how people are operating, I would just think, number one, I mean, there's so many angles we can go on this, but number one, the pressure of internally you or anyone else out there who took or takes that similar path would think, I've got the brains to do this. I've got the drive to do this. I've got my family backing me. They want big things for me. You know, they set that out from an early age. To be able to walk away from something as prestigious, even if it's just you holding that title out there of like, man, I'm in Harvard Law, to go in, okay, I'm going to go coach and basically play this game, which if you really strip it down, that's what it is, is a game. And that game brings in billions of dollars a year, right? But it's still a game. I'm just wondering if there were fears and doubts within you as other people sometimes experience when they take that big pivot, as you call it. How did you overcome those fears and that just that uncertainty of what might be around the corner? Yeah, you know, the, for me, the driving fear has always been time and death. You know, my dad's a Baptist minister. He used to take me along with him to nursing homes and funerals and weddings. And, and I think from a very early age, I've got a very tangible sense of time being a finite resource. And so, you know, I had friends who would say, oh, well, go practice and go into politics and then you can become a coach when you retire. And I kept thinking to myself, hey, who says I'm going to make it to retirement? Right. You know, I would rather if this thing keeps tugging at me the way that it does, I'd rather pull that into the present tense instead of putting it off because who knows? And I also had a very sneaky suspicion that once you get the mortgage and, you know, I have five beautiful children and an incredible wife and love them dearly, but it would be very hard for me to make a pivot into coaching now, you know, with, with that sort of a setup. And so I said, hey, I'm single. I got a 2002 Tahoe that was paid off at the time. And this is my opportunity to take a gamble. And I also, the last thing I'll say on this point, Jared, was this. I thought to myself, you know, legal issues aren't going anywhere. And if I go into coaching and hate it and want to practice, I can always do it. And so I think it's important for a lot of people to remember there's no such thing as a point of no return. You can take the previous experience and pivot and use that to make a good next step. Man, that's a big lesson for a lot of people out there who are probably driving around or working out, whatever, listening to this and feeling a little bit stuck, but feeling the pressure of, man, I can't go do that. I can't go change. I'm, I'm far enough into this thing or that thing that there's no way I could go do this other thing. But it's always tugging at them. But some of them do it and they're just knocking the cover off the ball and they wish they'd done it earlier. But it doesn't mean that they can't do it. And so same thing with you. You pursued that passion. You understood that time was just so finite, even at an early age, which most people don't get. And you were able to make that move. What did your family say? What did, you know, all the debt that you had racked up again? I'm just trying to think of how those fears may have, uh, obviously they didn't stop you, 
but how they may have made you hesitate. And then what, what was your family saying about it? You know, I, my, my mom and dad were very supportive. You know, they obviously walked me through all of the logistics and, you know, the deal in our family was that they were going to pay for undergrad and that I would pay for grad and law school. And so the loans for my master's and my law degrees were in my name. But they also, you know, I have to really give them a ton of credit because they made me feel very comfortable with my decision. And, you know, as we talked about it, you, you kind of realize, too, that that's the reason why I wanted to go to a place like Harvard Law. I mean, a lot of people will go to these kinds of schools and think, OK, now that I've gone here, that means that I can only do this. I thought well, this is going to open me up to being able to do whatever I want. And so, yeah, they were supportive. I had some friends who thought I was crazy. Uh, I had some friends sure. who were very supportive back in law school. But, you know, it was one of those things to where I just knew that I was going to be the one to have to live with myself for the rest of my life and uh, wanted to make the decision that I would feel great about and not regret down the road. Yeah. You know, it's amazing to me that you set your sights at the highest level right out of the gate. I mean, most guys I know, and I've got a good buddy of mine, Chris, who has been on the championship teams over at Carthage. They've won five state titles, went to A&M for a little while and worked under there. I mean, I've just watched him work his way through the grind. What made you think you could set your sights at the highest level possible and actually have a shot at getting in quickly? You know, the, the approach that's it's always sort of been the driving force for me is that I always think that the answer is no if I don't ask anyway. So a no doesn't do anything but put me back to square one. And I think flipping that entire approach, you know, a lot of people think if I get a no, then that's a negative. That's going to put me behind the eight ball. A no just puts you back in a position as if you had never asked. And so for me, I thought, let me just put out as many feelers, letters, phone calls, faxes, let me do whatever I can do to put my name in front of every NFL team with the hopes that one of them will bite. And I tell students now that I teach, you know, they start thinking about they want to have options before they have one offer. And I say, listen, just you just need one. So don't worry about having your top three. You cast a wide net. And if you get one, then you're in a good position. I've never heard it put that way before, at least not exactly like that. Getting a no really puts you in a no different of a spot than if you'd never asked. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, if you can get over kind of the shot to your psyche, Jared, I know it's tough. And I don't mean to minimize it for listeners. I know it's tough to hear someone tell you no or, um, you know, we don't have any positions for you. But if you just remember that had you not asked, that's exactly what your response would be. Then I, I hope that gives a lot of the listeners out there some encouragement just to go ahead and take some risk and put some feelers out there. And somebody, you'll be surprised. I've always said you'll always be surprised by the people or the companies or the organizations that will take a gamble on you if you go through that process and cast a wide net. Yeah, you just got to put it out there, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Did you have guys on the inside that you were communicating with at the NFL level, maybe saying, who should I send these letters to or whatever, that were like, you're not going to be able to just walk right in? I mean, did you have some of the naysayers there as well? Well, you know, the funny thing was that, you know, I was walking into this thing. My last name wasn't Belichick. I didn't have any coaching tree. I didn't have, you know, with the exception of my high school coaches, I didn't have any ends. And so I had no clue how things worked. I was really naive about the process. and. I knew it was going to be difficult because I read up on it, but it was interesting to watch it unfold because I would write letters and get the nose back and put the rejection letters up on my wall in my apartment and <laughs> kind of 
you know, wear them as a badge of honor. That's great. So I didn't have any insiders kind of uh, reaching out to me. I just kept getting those or, you know, the worst part is, is sending something to a team. I sent a letter to the Jets and never heard back from them. And so, you know, with so much mail that goes to those 32 teams, you can expect that. But yeah, I didn't really have anyone to kind of do that for me. I was just sort of floating. That's great. I mean, just wearing those as badges, wearing that, you know, a lot of people, they look at failure as just absolute devastation at different levels, even small failure, large failure. Looking at failure as feedback are the way that most of the people that continue to thrive and push through is how they look at it. So you're looking at those letters as badges or, you know, as what equate as feedback in that situation. And I love that. Walk us through this book reads like a story. Take us through just a couple of the highlights of things that you thought worthy to put in the book and why you put it there as you were going through this progression. Yeah, I think for me, number one, get in the building. And look, I know that for those people out there who have a great job right now, by great, I mean, it pays your bills plus some, you know, you're living in the neighborhood that you like, and you're taking the vacation that you enjoy. I know that a lot of people who are in that position also want to be doing something else. I've got a buddy of mine who's on track to be a partner at a big time law firm and he really wants to be a chef and you know we're having this conversation he's like hey Darren could you coach me up and I said yes I'll work with you and he kept talking about you know at what point he would enter enter uh the culinary profession I said hey man we need to try to get you a job as a bus boy I mean you need to be busting tables you just need to get into that restaurant atmosphere and learn the inner workings don't think that you're going to go in there at a medium to high level So one thing I think is important is humility. If you're going to break into a sector that you don't have any experience in, be willing to humble yourself and take a position that is below your pay grade, below your skill set, and then prove yourself and slowly climb up the ladder. So just get in the building. I think we complicate this so much sometimes because we're looking for the perfect end All I say is get in the building. If you want to be a coach, you need to write a letter to every office with a team, whether it's community affairs or marketing. You just want to get in the organization and then figure it out once you get inside. Tell me how you did that. I know you've mentioned sending the letters to the 32 NFL teams, working through the rejections, all of those sort of things. What was your mindset of, I think that's chapter one, if I don't have it right here in front of me, but I think that's chapter one in your book is get in the building. So obviously that's your lead point. Tell me how you did that with your transition into the NFL when you're writing those letters. Are you writing those letters and saying, I'll do whatever it takes, I'll do anything, or consider me for this position? How did you really get in the building with the NFL? Yeah, Jared, you know, if I looked at my resume and my background, the only coaching experience I had was as a, as a coach at a couple summer camps. And so I knew that I wasn't going to sell anyone on my limited coaching experience or my playing experience. I was a Five, nine and a half, 160 pounds strong safety for the Mount Pleasant Tigers back in 95 and 96. I was an all first team all district, which to this day is probably the accomplishment that I'm the most proud of. But, <laughs> you know, I didn't play, you know, I didn't play Division One ball or obviously didn't play in the pros. And so I wrote that, look, I've been in the world's most challenging educational environment for five years at Harvard. And the one thing that I can do is outwork people. I've spent countless nights in the library. I know what it means to stay up all night, all day to get an assignment done and our job done well. And I was going to bring that same work ethic 
to any job that I had in the NFL. And the letter I say, you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing now, but I said, I'm willing to do anything. I'll, I'll clean the bathrooms. I'll clean the chalkboards, put out cones at practice. You know, I'm coming in and I'm going to be quiet and I'm going to learn and I'm going to be willing to do whatever task you throw my way. And I think that's probably what moved the needle for the Chiefs. That's great. Just being able to recognize that you want in at the top. But how do we get there is just by getting in the building. And I think, like you said, we overcomplicate so many things, not only in career pivots or introductions to new things, but even in stuff that we've known for years, someone as a third party outsider could look back and go, man, you're beating your head against the wall. Like you're so overcomplicating this thing. And it should be something that you've done for a long time. And, you know, I wrote down a part of the book talking about get in the building. And it says in the book, you said, and I may be paraphrasing this, but you said in a Microsoft document file, code name GITB, get in the building. I laid out a core outline of nine areas, and I'm curious why these nine made the list. Philosophy, vision, short, medium, long-term goals, organizational chart, offensive mindset, defensive mindset, special teams mindset, player evaluation, crisis management. So obviously in this world you're getting into and getting in the building, so to speak, there could have been anything that made that list. Why those nine and how did that really formulate what you were trying to accomplish? Yeah, I saw a part of my job as the grunt, the training camp intern and then team intern, a part of my job was to gather as much intel as I could on the inner workings of an NFL team. And so any meeting that I had the opportunity to attend, whether it was a team meeting that was led by Coach Herm Edwards, or it was a defensive team meeting where the defensive coordinator was leading it, I was writing furiously because I wanted to get a sense of the guiding philosophies behind the key leaders in the team, the general manager, the owner, the head coach, you know, what were they preaching on a daily basis? What was important for them to communicate in a very consistent way? So that's why I thought about philosophy as this broad sort of overarching belief in how you run a team. And then I wanted to break down those goals, right? So for us in training camp, one goal was just to Let's build the best 53-man roster. So every team this August is going to walk onto their practice field with 90 players. And then by the time the first game kicks off of the regular season, every team's got to get down to 53 guys. And so as a coaching unit and as scouts and the general manager, you're really pressed to find the best 53 the best combination. And it doesn't always mean the best 53 players because, you know, these these guys work in tandem. So you may sacrifice a little bit of talent if someone can play or fulfill a key role for you. So, you know, all of this was so new to me, Jerry. I said, man, first of all, I know I'm going to be a head coach. I'm going to be Tony Dungy one day. I need to get as much of this down as possible on paper and really take a 360 look at what it means to run an NFL team the right way. So Darren, I was laughing. I know at one point in the book, I believe that's titled Embrace the Mundane. You've got a formula, which is X plus X divided by two equals Y. So the X is the original request. And then the Y is the final output. So it's original request plus original request divided by two equals the final output. Tell us why, what that meant to you, why you really tried to abide by that and, and obviously made it into the book. Yeah, you know, for me, it's interesting. I think a lot of people get, they get assignments, they get jobs, and they are content with doing the bare minimum. And so for me, you know, really, I thought to myself, 
the only way someone's going to recognize me, and Jared, you got to know that I walked around that building half of the time and coaches were looking at me like, who is this, you know, lawyer wannabe coach walking around the office? And I would ask people for jobs every day, poke my head into the special teams coach. Hey, coach, you need help with anything? No. All right. Just, you know, I'll be back tomorrow. And I said, when I get an assignment, I'm going to make sure that I always give myself a little bit of buffer room. So if you need me to make 60 copies, I'm going to come back with extras because I don't want to be the guy that walks in and you thought you needed 60, but you really need 70 and I'm empty handed. And so I think that's just something that whether you're going into coaching, you want to break into investment banking or journalism or real estate, whatever it is, you need to always aim to beat the expectation rather than meet them. And, you know, we're not at a level and the, and the folks who are who are listening to the Success 101 podcast, you know, no one's aiming for mediocrity. So putting yourself in a zone where you're going to always exceed the expectation has got to be a key part of your philosophy. That's great. Just that forward thinking about how can we really be the best versions of ourselves and doing that, going the extra mile. And I loved it whenever I read that in the book because I thought, man, how many more things in life could we apply that same formula to, even if it's different parameters of the equation to where we're better prepared to tackle anything versus being empty handed, Yeah, as you mentioned. Later on in the book, you work your way up, you go through a lot of different adversities. You, like you said, people are looking at you probably like, who is this guy? But at some point you finally got on the payroll. Walk us through that moment and tell us what that meant to you. Yeah. So I go through the season and I had one of those up and down roller coaster type of experiences where I thought I was going to be able to fly with the team to the first game and that didn't happen. And so I had to buy a Southwest flight and get to Houston for the opener on my own. But I persevered until the end of the season and we didn't do well at all. And Black Monday is the day after the final day of regular season games in the NFL. And this is the time when coaches get fired. And so I watched as many of our offensive coaches, you know, walked into our head coach's office and walked out and was asked to leave the building and they were packing up boxes. And so the secretary asked me to go to coach Edwards office. And I walked into the head coach's office and I'm thinking to myself, I said, Jerry, you know, I guess I can't be fired. Right. I mean, I, I hadn't signed a piece of paper since <laughs> I was in Kansas city. Yeah. That's uh, the good part about that whole deal. You can't be fired. I can't be fired. You know, I was never hired. I was kind of just around. And, um, he said, hey, hey, Darren, sit down. He said, hey, listen, just want to tell you that we really appreciate all of your contributions. And so I'm getting scared now. I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to have to go back home and figure something out and tell people that I got fired from an internship. And, and was this her? Was this Herm Edwards? This, this is her. Yeah, this is her head coach. And, and he had a straight face. And and I'm sitting there saying, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And then he slides a piece of paper across the desk and says, welcome to the NFL. And it, wow. was, it was a coaching contract. And listen, I didn't hesitate as a trained lawyer. I was, this is the only time that I never word, read a single word in a contract. <laughs> you know, as a financial advisor, I work with a lot of attorneys. I work a lot both in Houston, Dallas, and all over in the legal field. And I'll tell you, nobody reads more of the fine print than they do, of yes. course. So, especially for you to say that, I know what that means. I know what that means. <laughs> Especially when it applies to you, right? You know, I mean, I sat there and I thought to myself, I don't want to give the head coach any time to rethink, revisit, you know, take this offer off the table. I signed my name 
and gave it to him. And I walked out and into the bathroom and cried like a baby. And, wow. uh, you know, it was just for me and even thinking about it now, you know, it kind of gives me gives me the chills because I had worked. I mean, I was sleeping at the office most nights. I was getting barbecue for defensive linemen. I mean, I was taking guys to the airport and picking up cones. And it was such it was just such an affirmation of all that hard work and something that I completely I did not expect at all. I thought I would have to volunteer for another year just to get a serious look. And so that was the beginning. And I was on my way after that first contract. You've got a point in the book that I loved as well. I'd love for you to expand on it, but it said, give yourself a chance to be disappointed. Keep taking gambles. You only have to be right once. And it's got Mark Cuban's name out there. Why was that one of your main pivot points? You know, I think that we just complicate things and it's just a human tendency for us. We complicate the process so much. We already, before we have offers, before we have opportunities, we're already thinking through what people may say 10, 15 steps down the road. And my thing is just to keep it so simple. And you just need one yes. You know, get that yes, work your butt off, and then get the next yes. And then work your butt off and get the next yes, right? I think that's whether it's a startup or whether it's a restaurant or you're writing a book, you just got to get through one page, all right? And let's get a chapter. And just keep going and don't get ahead of yourself and think about, okay, what does the closing have to be? Or what's this thing going to go for in the IPO? No, just build something that people want, take it one step at a time and everything else falls in place. Yeah, and I think that really flies in the face of what most business people or people in any role that are trying to excel to higher levels today, the way the mind works is to avoid pain. For you to say, give yourself a chance to be disappointed really a lot of people wouldn't even understand that unless they went down the track that you have been down. Yeah. You know, and I'm doing some research here at UT because I'm trying to put some data behind this, but I have had a hypothesis that the more you put yourself through situations for rejection. So I have, in one of the classes that I teach, I have a failure management part of the syllabus where I put my students through rejection challenges. So they have to go with a partner to Starbucks and ask for a free drink, or they have to go to the track and, and, and challenge someone to a race. And so I'm trying to put them in positions where they're going to get told no. And over time, I want to build up this immunity to where you look back and you say, you know what? I didn't get that latte at Starbucks, but I'm still alive. It's okay. Right? Hey, I may have written that letter to the Google office here in Austin and I didn't get the internship, but I'm still breathing. Things are okay. So I just think that the more you can put yourself in a position to be rejected and to get no, the more likely you are to take the more risk that you need to put yourself in a position to be successful. And that's great. You know, most people would say, give yourself a chance to succeed. You're saying, give yourself a chance to be disappointed. I love that. Who was the most influential? You may not be able to break it down to one, but who was the most influential mentor or partner you had in the NFL showing you the ropes? You know, I, I have to go back to Gunther Cunningham was the defensive coordinator. He was one of the longest serving coaches in the NFL, had been the head coach of the of the Chiefs. And he really showed me the ropes. You know, I think it's important and people talk about mentors. You know, you need people 
mentors are great, but I believe sponsors are even better. And later I found out that Gunther Cunningham had gone to Herm and said, you need to hire this guy. You need people who will give you the inside scoop. Hey, this is what this organization is about. Who are going to be tough on you and say, you're not doing this job the way it needs to be done. Here's how you get better. But then who will go that final step to once you get to a certain level and you're ready, they will stand on the table for you and ask someone else to take a gamble. And and that's what Gunther Cunningham did for me, you know, and really, you know, he's he's one of the main reasons why I was able to have, you know, a seven year career as a coach in, in college in the NFL. So I'm forever indebted to him. Some coaches and some mentors are with you out there because you pay them a tremendous sum of money. So maybe they're not thoroughly thrilled about the progress you're making, but they're just they're running a business and you're one of their coaching partners. Right. And you're paying them money. But to get a sponsor, somebody that's going to not only show you the ropes, but behind closed doors, lift your name and elevate your name, you really have to have people that believe in you. And you don't do that without gaining a tremendous amount of trust. You know, there was something within you that gave him a belief and a trust to be able to put his neck on the line and, and throw your name out there. So that's very interesting that I'll, I'll take that with me as well as a nugget from this conversation is mentors are great, coaches are great, but to get a sponsor takes a ton of trust, a ton of belief from that person down to you. And how are you cultivating those relationships? Because you never know when they're going to be the one that puts their neck on the line for you. No, absolutely. Because I think that, you know, sponsors, what makes them so special is that they're sacrificing their own integrity. You know, if Herm hired me and I didn't work out, you know, I basically did a poor job, that would go back, you know, that, that would be a loss for Gunther. And so there are a lot of people who are great mentors, but who aren't really willing to leverage their own credibility for you. And it may be because you're not ready, right? But there are very few people who will do that. But when you find them, I mean, they're really a special, that's a special kind of person. You and I were talking a little bit offline about how people, uh, some of it being the overcomplicated part, some people not being, you know, used to being disappointed or rejection. And we started talking through people realizing or getting to a point in their life where they maybe haven't accomplished what they wanted to. And for some people, they would define that as a midlife crisis. What you and I were actually talking through was the people that I see in my financial coaching career, the people that you've probably seen in business or other places. What I've observed, and this is just a recent revelation for me, is that when I'm coaching my financial clients, many times I thought age 50 was where people were hitting that deer in the headlights look, especially for us as guys, women too, but for us as guys, especially having that check the box and that pride and that ego of here's what I'm going to accomplish by such and such time and then not doing it somewhere around age 50, that midlife crisis. Now I'm seeing it a lot earlier. For me, whenever I describe that, especially to my young advisors, it's around age 40 where I see people realizing how far they are from hitting their goals that they once thought were attainable. And it's because they just didn't do maybe some of the hard things or didn't put themselves in those situations. But I would describe that at age 40 being a young life crisis, not necessarily a midlife crisis. Yeah, you know, I think what's happened is that this information age, technological boom, it is so much easier now to make a pivot that there's a constant reminder to many of us that we're not doing what we really want to do in life. And there are reminders that whether they're podcasts or online courses you know, there are so many ways now to really learn about that life that you want and to and to create a game plan for getting there that people are now having the realization earlier rather than later that, oh, you know, I knew it would be difficult. And now I see that there are really some easier steps than I thought were out there that I could take. And 
I don't know what to do. And so, you know, I think people are just amazed at how much opportunity there is out there to make a pivot and they get scared quicker now. Um, and, and for those people, I'll say, and you know this, Jared, because, you know, you're working with people to help really build their financial foundation. I think that no matter where you are in life, if you can put yourself in a position to save enough money to float you for six months, I've always said that six months to me tends to be enough of a window for you to break into another profession or career and gain some traction. And you'll know towards the end of that six month period, first, whether or not you really want it. And then two, whether or not you you have what it takes to succeed in that world. If you can save enough money and get your family to sign off on it, then you've got a shot. You know, you've got a shot. So, you know, I just think about this podcast itself. There's so many ways to just get better at making pivots and finding a better life for yourself. So it's not too late for, for the folks out there listening, you know, in the success one-on-one world, it's not too late. It's just a matter of sitting down and, and putting a plan together. Yeah, I'm reminded about that a lot, just working with older clients. I think my average client now is about age 48, 49. So pushing up to that, you know, that 50-year-old mark. And I'm 35, so I'm looking at dead in the eye of some of these people and trying to learn from them because they are in an area of life that you and I are going to. We'll blink and we'll be 50 years old. You know, yeah. they all they all tell me the same thing. It came so fast. Where did time go? So I don't think, Darren, you and I are going to be like, man, that took a long time to get here. I mean, I think we're going to blink and we're going to be right there just where they are. So I'm trying to learn a ton from them, but then also looking them dead in the eye and saying, man, you've got so much life left to live. And I learned a lot of my lessons at 33 after hitting burnout and really where this podcast was created. But for them, they're thinking, I'm 50 and it's over. I wasted life, (laughs) whatever. It's like, no, 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 man, you've got so much life left to live. We're never promised another day here, but statistically, they're going to be here a long time. Start making a change now, but you've got to do the things that are uncomfortable and you got to have that immunity to rejection and uncomfortable situations, as you mentioned. I've got a really important question that I want to go ahead and ask now so I don't forget, but you've been through the business world, the law world. You've seen the complexities and the relationship struggles of coaching and having to let people go and all the turnover and Black Monday and all those sort of things. Now you're running your Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation down there at the University of Texas. Got five kids, beautiful wife, as you mentioned. Here's my question. What 2017, what does Darren Roberts want the most right now? I have, and this is a realization that I came to a couple of years ago, but I know that my purpose in life is to help people identify, craft, and execute a game plan for success. That is, so every opportunity that comes my way Everything that I consider, I I run through that purpose filter, and that tells me whether or not I should spend time doing it. And, you know, the crazy thing about it, Jared, is that I realize that, uh, you know, titles make for very poor traveling companions. And I used to think, hey, I'll just, I'll be a defensive coordinator and I'll feel better, or I'll be the governor, or I'll be a professor. And you find out that those titles don't help you sleep better at night. There's a short-lived euphoria from the pay bump and and all of the accolades. But at the end of the day, unless you're living your purpose, you're not going to find fulfillment. And so I'm at a very comfortable stage in my life where I'm enjoying teaching undergraduates, 
working with student athletes, writing, podcasting. And so every opportunity that I take from this point forward will really feed into that purpose. And I'm not sure where that's going to lead me, but I'm having a hell of a good time running this race. (laughs) That is awesome. You know, I'm just I'm thinking back to a comment that you made in the beginning. I'll paraphrase here, but it's just out of everything that we've said, this has really stuck with me. When your dad unrolled that map uh, and told you about your great great grandfather and what he had accomplished and said, you know, basically this leaves you with no excuses. It's amazing how much the sponsors in our lives, which you you could put our parents there, you know, as well, just really create a vision for us early on. So you've got five kids, ages what to what? What's the youngest to the oldest? <laughs> Well, little Micah will turn three weeks tomorrow, so we've got. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> Man, congrats! Yeah, so we're. So you're not getting any sleep right now, then. I'm not getting. You know, luckily I've never been able to sleep uh, more than five, five and a half hours, so it works out well. But we range from six and a half to three weeks. So Dylan, six and a half. Sydney, our girls, uh, four and a half. We've got three and a half, one and a half, and three weeks. Obviously, you know, from the the lesson that your parents, you know, showed you and and the things that they had hoped for and then the support even that you got from them whenever all of the pivot happened. I just think it's amazing. That's why it really just seared on me as a dad myself. It's just that they can create without probably even realizing it. I mean, your dad probably knew that he was sending a a profound message to you, but didn't realize maybe how you were taking it in. And you'd be on a podcast one day talking about it or in a book talking about it. But it's just such an awesome role we have as fathers to take every moment whether we think they're really understanding it fully or not and really create that vision. Because I'm just thinking if, if you didn't have that as a future passing down from father to father to, to your dad and then now to you, you know, all of those people in some way have shaped who you are today. And it's just always such a great reminder. There's things we have to do to pull our bootstraps up and, and uh, really go make things happen. But it's all that framing that comes with earlier in life, the mentors and the sponsors that we have. And I just think that's such a great takeaway from this is just what, as a father, what are you already doing to really help build your children's future that you don't even see or they don't even see yet? I think that's great. It's so true. And I'll tell you this, Jared, I think that one thing that I struggle with as a father is really being present when I'm at home. You know, I had my daughter tell me at home, she was talking to me and she asked me, was I listening? You know, and I'm like, yeah. And she's like, no, you're not. You got your phone in your hand. And, <laughs> um, and I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. And I think I take the time. This is something that's worked for me, and it's I'm I'm still growing through this. But I will sit in my truck when I pull into the driveway, and I'll close my eyes and I'll tell myself, "Okay, this is their time." So when I walk in the house, I'll get home at about four thirty. They're going to go to bed at seven thirty. I need to give them three good hours of my time. That means turning my phone off and really spending quality time with them. And so. You know, for any fathers out there, I think it's important for us because it's so easy for us to think we're, you know, go through the motions. But these kids are too smart. They get it. And we're doing them a disservice. So I know it's tough, but we've got to find a way to put the phones down and really spend quality time with them. So as we get ready to wrap up here, I want to make sure that we hit this part of the book as we're talking about kids and family and all of that as we close and I'll try not to read this word for word here, but it's in your afterward. It's in the back of the book. Your son came into the kitchen. He's three years old at that point, And you were just done getting fired by the Cleveland Browns. Yeah. And you said, you know, you, you told him good morning. Hello. He said, you eat breakfast. <laughs> and you didn't understand what he was trying to say. You, know, you didn't understand what he was trying to say. 
And you basically realized, like, you got it then. He had never seen you eat breakfast before, or, or it just didn't stand out to him. You dropped the spatula, sat down on the floor, and cried. Take yeah. us through that moment. You know, that one hit me like a ton of bricks. It, uh, when he first walked up to me, you know, he said, you eat breakfast. And so I'm like, yeah. And it, it goes back to what we were just talking about, Jared. I, was, I wasn't really there. I was still thinking about getting fired. And then he came back, and it just... I think the irony of realizing that I was spending all of my time with other people's sons and my own son didn't know me. That was, that was, that was the uppercut that got me. And yeah. especially because I had a dad who was in my life from day one, was home every evening, throwing the ball around with me, helping me do homework. And so I just thought to myself that I can't continue to live that life. And we were averaging a city every two years. And I have a lot of respect for coaches. This is not a, this is nothing that I'm saying is uh, denigrating coaches because they are, in many ways, the fathers and the mothers of a lot of children across the planet. But right. um, for me, I realized I needed to stop and give them some quality time. And so, you know, one thing that we do is we have Donut Council, which is every Saturday I load all the kids up into the car. Red shirts, and, right? And red shirts. I mean, we got, we've got, <laughs> uh, my mom is, she does embroidery and her retirement life. And so, you know, we're getting new shirts in, and, but we go to a donut shop and we sit up and just eat donuts and talk about life and lessons and what's going on in the news. And it's a really special time. I mean, they, they enjoy it. If I'm ever out of town on a Saturday, you know, they won't let me live that down for at least a couple of weeks, but it's just a great way for me to give my wife a break, but then also for me to get some quality time in with my kids and, you know, make sure that they see me eating breakfast. You know, I don't think I've ever mentioned this on a podcast, 160 something episodes in, and I don't think I've ever said this, but to your point about him saying, Dylan saying, do you eat breakfast? Kids say the funniest things and we just don't always know what's registering with them. My kids would say similar things uh, up to about a year ago. They would, we'd be putting them down at night. And, you know, all of a sudden one night, my oldest daughter, she was probably three and she said, hey, are you going to spend the night here tonight? And it was just so weird. Like, hmm. it didn't even register with me. I'm like, what? Of course I'm going to spend the night. She's like, oh. And I just thought it was like kid, kids being kid, silly, you know, whatever. And then like a few nights later, she asked again, like, are you going to stay here tonight? And I asked her, I said, baby, why are you asking that? She said, well, sometimes you don't stay here. I said, I stay here every night. What are you talking about? And so it clicked. Like what she was saying was, you leave my room after you put me to bed. And then whenever I go run into mom's bed in the morning, you're not there. Mm -hmm. So to her, I wasn't spending the night every night because I thought I had to go beat the pavement at three or four in the morning just to go get stuff done. And it's like, wow, man, holy cow, my kids. It's just one of those things as a dad, you, it's kind of weird sounding at first, but then you really get to the meaning of what they're saying. And you do, you do realize they understand more than than you think. And uh, so, yeah, I totally, when I read your story on that, that's, it, it took me straight back there. So for dads listening out there, I mean, it's just a good message of just how much impact we have in our kids' lives. And, and you just never know what your actions, good or bad, are really meaning to them and what path it's setting them on. So just be in the moment, be mindful of that. And I loved your story because it took me back to my own memories there of, of just learning that early. So no, Jared, I want to, I want to thank you. I think that we don't talk about this stuff enough as dads and fathers and you know, I think we have this, and I don't know where we got it from, you know, the way we were brought up and that we need to have it all figured out and act like we know what we're doing. And you and I both know that most of the time we're trying to, we're trying to figure things out just like our kids, no, you know, right. but I do think, you know, as I'm listening and talking with you, 
the more that we can help support dads who are who are trying to do it the right way, who are trying to, you know, uh, live lives of integrity and, and help their kids grow into to positive people. You know, I think this is going to hopefully help a lot of them on that journey. Yeah, that is great. Darren, thanks so much for your time. You blessed me here today. And, you know, so much of your message is about more than just the book. And that's why I wanted to get you on and really, you know, pick your brain on this. So we wish you the utmost continued success and on to significance and everything that you'll do. And I know that, uh, you know, you're going to create that path for your kids just as your parents did. And that's a great, great thing. So, guys, the book is called Call an Audible. Let my pivot from Harvard Law to NFL coach inspire your transition. Darren Roberts, where can we steer more traffic your way in the world of email, social media, online presence, where can people really connect with you who hear this message? Thanks so much, Jared. You know, I am at Coach DKR, and that is on Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram. I upload an inspirational video Monday through Friday on Instagram and Facebook, so you can find me on those media at Coach DKR. And then sign up for my leadership newsletter, send it out once a week. You can go to coachdkr.com. But would love to connect with the Success 101 family. Really love the content that you're pushing out, Jared, and I appreciate you for having me on. Absolutely. And you guys know who are listening in, if you're faithful listeners, I don't just endorse anything. I test everything and sometimes I'm hardheaded and I have to keep testing until I finally realize it's great to put out and I should have done it long ago. But this book is a no-brainer. Call an Audible. You guys go get your hands on it. Thanks so much, Darren, for your copy. And I enjoyed going through every bit of it. And uh, it's just a, it's an awesome, it's a fun book to read through. It's a good story, but it's also so many lessons in there. And your pivot points uh, just taught me a lot. So thank you so much. And we wish you the best. Thank you, Jared. Take care, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Guys, I loved having Darren on today and his story of pursuing what your heart's desire is and finding ways to go make that happen and hope more of you call an audible in your own life if you find yourself in a position you shouldn't be in but aren't sure how to break away from it. If you guys would like to connect with my team and I, the best way to do that is by email at info at success101podcast.com or in the world of social media on the Success 101 Podcast Facebook page or Instagram under the name at Success 101 Podcast. I hope you guys keep sending in your thoughts and comments and keep rocking 2017 toward higher levels of peak performance and maximum potential. And I'll catch you guys on the next awesome episode of the Success 101 Podcast. Until then. Until then.